Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I am a god. Everybody says, who does he think he is? I just told you who I thought I was. A god. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to talk about some culture ward bullshit for the first segment. Are you excited for all those one-star reviews on iTunes? <laughs> those, those bring me down. I try really not to be bothered, but it's so reliable that whenever we talk about something that our, our uh, centrist, should I call them? Yeah. Centrist uh, listeners don't like. that Our Eric Weinstein stands. Yeah, yeah. But we love you people too. You know, even if you don't just less to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't just love everybody indiscriminately. But but then we get a really, you know, we got a really nice uh, Twitter thread about our our um, episode with James Lindsay. Um, so so at least I think we make up for uh, for some of our lost listeners with, with some of the your new uh, extreme leftist. Uh, All right. So. Should we start with uh, Mr. Potato Head? Yeah, first? I was going to say, in order of importance with the, the top, the, the, most, the most pressing issue of the day, being the gender of Mr. Potato Head. So <laughs> I just heard people, like, all of a sudden, one day, a few days ago, uh, Mr. Potato Head was dropping the Mr. It was clearly something, like, that was supposed to appeal to the trans community, making them feel more welcome, and everyone was freaking out about it, you know, on Twitter. Um, right. right. This that, was another, you know, incursion by the social justice warriors. Right. Keep your politics out of my childhood toys. So, so, so right. <laughs> what do you give a fuck about your childhood toys, first <laughs> of all? But yeah, the, the, the first tweet that I saw was some like congressman saying he wanted to secede. <laughs> <laughs> this, it's, it's so, you know, this it's stuff like, is, it, it's so, it, uh, it's such performance and it's so tiring. I, but I think the, it's to the extent that I take any of this stuff seriously, it really exhausts me. And when I step back and just laugh at stuff like that, then, then it's not so bad. But I feel like this week in particular, like starting with Mr. Potato Head, then Dr. Seuss, then like all of this stuff, it just drains me. Like, I, like why do people care this much? I don't. Um, I have some thoughts on that, okay, but we should good. say um, that our main episode, our main segment today, is going to be on a really interesting article that you can that you found on dreams. We wanted to do like a comprehensive, just solving dreams. Uh, <laughs> that turned out to be something that we we're not going to be able to do in one episode. So we're going to end up talking about a really good paper on dreams that it does offer a theory of dreams, and then also connects it to art and the yeah. importance of art. So that's what we'll talk about in the second segment. Now. 
Yeah, so the uh, why do people care so much? I, I don't know. Like, I think it's just something that's been this, like, avalanche, a snowball effect where people take the progress that's good and, and extend it to places that, where it becomes trivial, sanctimonious, and, yeah. um, and, then there, and then those incidents get inflated by the Christina Hoff Summerses of the world. <laughs> but it's not obviously not just her now. It's now just a large contingent of the center right, this, some, of the, some on the center left, and then, of course, further right. Like, they, they really think this is like an existential threat to the nation. And right. and so everything gets inflated right now, and and yeah. you know now the Mr. Potato Head thing was not even real, right? I mean, they all they did was rebrand the you know it's just the superset of Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head is just now branded Potato Head, and then right. you can buy Mr. Potato, you can buy Mrs. Potato Head, and you know it's extra silly given that like you can obviously change the gender of the potato head very easily with the accessories that are provided. <laughs> so I, they were always a little gender fluid to begin with. That seems, <laughs> what do you mean? Like just if you put a mustache on, on Mr. Potato Head, then it, that automatically makes it a man? Yeah, absolutely. Male. In fact, every once in a while, I put on uh, powder to stop the shine on my face when I have to do like a video conference. And I am a woman in that moment. I, I have, I've just, <laughs> you become a woman. I, you should not other, um, argue otherwise. <laughs> Can I read you the tweet that yeah. uh, the Potato Head Company, um, Hasbro, I guess, did uh, yeah. when I, I, I assume they got just a huge amount of backlash for this fairly <laughs> innocuous thing that they were that they were doing. So this was the tweet. While it was announced today that the Potato Head brand name and logo are dropping the Mister, I am proud to confirm that Mister oh. and Mrs. Potato Head aren't going anywhere and will remain Mister and Mrs. Potato Head. Uh, I love fence, that. Such fence writers. <laughs> I am proud. Y A M. I love that. That redeems the whole controversy to me. <laughs> I like uh, that. Even though they're responding to something, they they probably just took like a huge amount of shit. Like they kind of came up with the right response to it. We'll kind of take it seriously, but we'll also make fun of it and not uh, and show that we don't take it seriously. And yeah, all of you can right. fuck off. Right. Right. I mean, um, I'm, I'm idealizing probably like, <laughs> <laughs> the response. Uh, um, Mr. and Ms. Potato Head are probably going to enjoy a surge in sales. Um, and, <sighs> yes. And, you know. That's, see, that, that, that's the, you know, like the conspiracy will uh, unearth. <laughs> this was all just a way for them. Because who the hell, like who buys Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head anymore anyway? Or I know. Head? It also, it's such a weird toy to begin with. It um, is a very it, How did it not make you uncomfortable in the first place? <laughs> and I, I'm assuming, I don't remember because I don't think I ever have one, but they don't have like penises uh, or vaginas. Mr. Mr. They have strap-ons and penises. <laughs> they have, have strap-ons. <laughs> uh, no, they don't have any genitalia. Um, it, you have to go to third-party vendors <laughs> to get those. <laughs> aftermarket, aftermarket adjustments to your potato head. The dark web. It used to even be just a potato. It used to be just, yeah. It used to be just the lips and whatever mustache that you would put on. You, you had to bring your own potato. Um, mm. That's how the, the toy started. <laughs> that seems um, like, but they would send you, and then you would just play with them. With the, you is just, that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, it was just accessories that you would put on a regular potato to like put, make your potato into a toy. It was like some Great Depression era shit, man. That sounds like depressing. <laughs> but it also sounds a lot more environmentally friendly. 
Yeah, maybe. Let's go back to that, and then you know, and then compost the potato after you're done playing with it. <laughs> you know what I just realized is, in, so I've had in my head this week three or four like culture war kinds of topic things that happened that I don't even real, I don't even, I haven't even categorized them as whether it was the right or the left that was annoying me. And one of them, I don't know if you heard of, of about this that I just was reminded was that like on TikTok, like at least these were the claims of the tweets that Gen Z was trying to cancel Eminem because they heard his lyrics, you know, to this one song and they were abhorred. And then all these millennials took to Twitter to defend Eminem and say that he can't be canceled. I don't even know what side of the political spectrum that's on. That's just some crazy, like, sanctimonious shit right there, though. Like, Yeah. And also, like, he's not getting canceled. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Oh, he probably Let, paid paid people to to try to cancel. Him. Right again, he's like it's like when Seinfeld and Chris Rock said that they won't play college campuses anymore. They're not getting invited to or or no Seinfeld and some another like old guy and maybe it was Chris Rock. It's like well no, you're just not getting invited to college campuses because you're <laughs> fucking sixty years old. They're playing it off like when when you yeah. stumble and you try to make it look like a dance step. Like I, I, no, I meant I meant to not get invited to college. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's look at a good microcosm of these, which I would not have known. And this is one way in which it is a microcosm. Like, I would not have known about this if you and Yoel, I forget which one of you first um, texted. Uh, yeah, I, we have I, a little thread that we, saw, yeah. that we have sometimes go. And some, you were, I think it was you that said, like, they're trying to cancel Daniel Lincolns or yeah. um, they're piling on Daniel Lincolns because of a tweet. Right. Right, right. So, so La I've I've learned that I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's Lackens. Lackens. Uh, sorry. Dan Lackens uh, uh, tweet tweeted, "The arc of the scientific universe is long, but it bends toward transparency." Which, whatever you know, like it, Lackens is a champion of science. I get you know I understood what he was trying to say. I didn't even think uh, that that this might be an outrageous thing. The replies to that, the, the, one of the big criticisms is, you know, he, he's equating the uh, scientific open science practices to the civil rights movement, because this is a riff on the uh, uh, Martin Luther King quote. Right, right. Um, or appropriating a uh, Martin Luther King quote is, is maybe not the open science, open science community's best look. I think anytime right. somebody says it's not a good look, like, I, that's, that's already good. It's going to start, you're going into annoying territory. Uh, you're, you're done. But, but, but so, like, what do you think of that? Like, just at, on, on its face, before we talk about, like, whether it's a, uh, yeah. I'm, is that a like, problem at all? Um, decontextualized, like, like, manipulating quotes for stuff, I, I think it's. No, I mean, like, like, do you have a problem with doing it for the Martin Luther King quote? Oh, no, no, no. No. I mean, I don't like, I don't, I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong here, but my sensibility is like, whatever we say shit like this, they shall live in infamy about like going to the bathroom and having like a big bowel movement. Like, right. We say that all the time. It's like, I don't, I, I mean, are you disrespecting? Like, would I tweet it? I guess now I would think about it. Cause I, you know, I, I care about what people You're think. Chilled. And, you, but yeah. I mean, I'm a little chilled. I, I would. You, you know, I joked that the title of this episode should be I Have a Dream. But now, like, for sure, it's not going <laughs> to. No, I think we should. You got to stand up to the woke mob. Um, I, it seems like such a waste of energy. Um, well, so, I, I yeah, I don't have a problem with it either. And it's, I feel like a lot of the time people do this 
it's almost disingenuous. Like I don't, I don't, I'm not saying any of these people that replied to Lackens as being disingenuous. Um, but it sounds disingenuous to me because it's like, you know, that he's not really equating, um, right. The open right. site, you know, that that's absolutely not what he's doing, what he means right. to do or, and so then you're just saying that something about that just objectively or automatically, you know, you know, whether his intentions are that or not, that's, I think just like clearly not true given how often we do these things. And this is something that always bugs me because people do it about, you know, the Holocaust. Anytime somebody mentions Hitler or the Holocaust, people will get all worked up and say, you know, don't trivialize the Holocaust or they're, they're right. not, you can't, they're not fucking trivializing the Holocaust. You can't trivialize the Holocaust. <laughs> like that's not possible to do. Right. And if they're drawing an analogy that they think is useful, like that's all that they're doing. You know, right. and so the like this whole you're equating thing, I just find to be and a little bit disingenuous, I think. I don't know. Yeah, whether I think it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an unfair reading of what's going on. And I think, yeah. you know, what what's at the heart of it, I think, is people wanting to condemn somebody who they probably already don't like or think already they already have reason to believe that they are um, sort of not not the good person that they ought to be. I think that's what a bit of what's happening here, Lagans has enemies on Twitter for his, you know, shit that he says about bad science and, and people he thinks are dumb. So I, you know, I, I don't, he has a thick skin. He says shit about people, people saying shit about him. Um, but here I think is just particularly unfair. Like criticize him for uh, like mean shit that he's done in the past. Like I go ahead, fine. Well, that, that's not. the disingenuous part of it. Yeah. Like that criticize him for what you want to criticize him, not for this. But I, I don't know. Like, I think that, well, I don't know. So I don't know the people who are doing it and I don't know what they think of Lackens, but there, this is a kind of complaint that you see a lot. Um, yeah. And it's always struck me as just nonsensical and also almost never coming from the people who are supposed to be aggrieved by it or trivialized. Like if you look at, so I guess we're at the Will Gervais tweet. Yeah. So Will Gervais, uh, like, you know, ca like, Posted an image of the tweet so as to not to amplify, I guess, the tweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. I know. I know Lackens. I know Will a little bit. Like we've met. I. Um. I don't. You know. I'm not gonna make this personal, except for the whole amplifying because you find that somebody did something that you're offended <laughs> on behalf of other people by and amplifying. Yeah. I don't think to paraphrase that that's not a good look. Like I don't think that. That right. that seems to me like you are now just trying to get credit for finding something wrong on Twitter. Like, right, right. The, if you are so worried about amplifying it, then it seems like you just wouldn't uh, do it at all. Like, like I can't go to at Lackens and find that tweet, like, which right. is what I did immediately. <laughs> I didn't. I only saw it because Will uh, tweeted. Oh, you did. I would yeah. not. I would not have seen it uh, otherwise. And so then, you know, then you had, you, you, you questioned whether it was a pylon and it's probably not a pylon. It was just like a, a few, a handful of people complaining. Yeah. Um, yeah. he's like this, you know, the Dutch built slave ships. So I'm not surprised. Yeah. No, they're just... total white. It's not that they're, <laughs> they're, that they're not white supremacists. They are. It's just right. that this doesn't not, prove. It's, it's right. This quote did not come from Lackens' white supremacy. Like right. other stuff came from his <laughs> exactly. white supremacy. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, one thing that's notable when you look through the replies, and again, I, I don't think it's a pile on it. I think uh, 
the UOL no. said that they're comp- they're they're making him out to be a white supremacist. I don't think they're doing that either. It's that that would almost be more interesting than what they're actually doing. They're just bitching about it. But um, it seems like virtually everyone is white that is complaining about it. Yeah. Oh wait, I saw one that that he tweeted this on February 27, and apparently it was an extra sinful, egregious error because it was in Black History Month. So right, Lacken yeah. said, "You only waited till March one. It wouldn't have been as bad." <laughs> And, but uh, but yeah, that and is characteristic of some of these kind of pseudo controversies is that it's the white people that are complaining about it the most, the, um, the privileged people. Now, whether yeah, I, that's... I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if the peop- there were people of color complaining about it, but that I think the point still stands. I think it's often... The, there is a type of person who is quick to, to, to be offended at this, and I, I would venture to say that like base rates are that... <laughs> <laughs> that these are people who have the luxury of being offended by open science tweets that use MLK quotes. It really made me think about stuff that I, it really did make me think about stuff that I would say, that I would normally easily say. But isn't it instructive that Lank, uh, Lackens just totally stood his ground and like didn't apologize, didn't like, and just told people who objected like why he disagreed with them. And it was fine. Like, yeah. you know, like nothing happened to him. He's still there. He's still tweeting. He's still um, and, and people move on um, and nobody we, nobody would even be talking about it except that, you know, we brought it up on this um, right, right. explosively popular podcast. You know? <laughs> let's let's just be clear. The irony of this conversation does not escape me. <laughs> right, we're, we're well aware yeah. But no, I thought that was actually something that I wish people would take a lesson from. I don't think the lesson here is don't is be more careful about what you say. I think the lesson is if you do get these people who uh, are unfairly criticizing you, don't back down to them. Don't apologize. Don't pretend you're sorry. Just like uh, either ignore them or just like respond to them with what you think. And it's going to be fine. People's att- yeah, you, there's, the attention spans aren't long enough for, uh, for right. these kinds of things to last. Right. And really, so, like, often, like in this case, the people who are, you know, the whole reason anybody even knows about them at all is because people are looking from the side that you and Yoel were on in this case to complain about the complainers. Right. Which is often, and, you know, yeah. Lacken said something that I think is underappreciated by Americans. And I think anybody who has sufficient international experience would know this, which I think is true, which is the racial sensibilities and the political sensibilities of Americans are a really... They're like a very unique way of thinking. And it requires you to have been, I think, socialized heavily in this country to even think that that some of these things would be missteps. And to, even if you think that what he did was insensitive, to hold somebody from another country um, to the standard of like what somebody here would know about, like some leftist American elite person would know about, um, is I think a kind of... of misstep in and of itself that you just can't get out of your head here that somebody might not even be thinking that right so you're trying to like one up the like the sanctimony yeah. here i'm going to take a picture of <laughs> will gervais tweet and I'm gonna... <laughs> the sanctimonious small-minded culturally national... <laughs> insensitive will gervais this is so my last thing that i wanted to say about this thing that we've already talked about too long but is it's interesting also that this was done 
to objecting to somebody who is saying something on behalf of open science, which is trying to make significant <laughs> radical changes to the way science is conducted, and that often these kinds of controversies tend to be ones that end up somehow making it harder to change the status quo. And like this is something that you see a lot. Like you, we talked about it some earlier episode. The people who who say broken science, you know, like broken science, and yeah, and and this was obviously something with Bernie and people accusing them of being Bernie Bros and racist. And like these are tactics, or uh, t- tactics makes it sound like it's conscious. And I think a lot of times maybe this is unconscious. But these are ways for what's in power to stay in power. And even though their build is like exactly the opposite of that. Right. So you have, so there is this whole, you know, something we just avoided talking about too much was the, the whole context of critics of open science and the way that certain people who are proponents of open science have acted, you know, perhaps, perhaps in misogynistic or racist ways, like that's possible. But the, the truth of the matter is that the people who have the power to institute these large scale reforms in science are going to be people who have power. And so it's an easy way to take down um, these people uh, by accusing them of being part of a culture that is, uh, you know, toxic. Yeah. And that's not to say that their people shouldn't be really careful looking at what they're doing and what kind of culture they're creating around open science. But I think that's the the context is that there's this fear that open science is somehow anti, you know, anti woman, anti people of color. And when in reality, I think everybody who, who is a, true proponent of open science doesn't feel that way. Maybe there have been some bad actors that give it a bad name, but you're, but I think you're right. This is a way, this is an easy way of taking down the message that, that I think is a good one of, of open science of reform. Um, yeah. But yeah. And it's and, weird because the, the critics have largely come from, you have like very established high power, older professors at elite universities who shit on open science. Yeah. And then you have like the bro open science, the, you know, right. the, the grassroots. You know, <laughs> and even like, uh, I remember we talked about that Tej Rai thing. Yeah. Um, and right. he's somebody that it's raised these concerns and he's the editor of Science Magazine. Right. And like a lot of these things are, you know, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, they send a message about like making it harder to make real significant reforms. Um, and I think, again, this is, this is a pattern that you see throughout the domains of culture and politics, and that sucks. Yeah, like that's right. the that's the worst thing about it. Otherwise, it would just be really annoying. But the fact right. that it also ends up doing that—it's a way of dividing people who should be on the same team. Um, I can see why people who are powerless um, in many ways because of their background might say, "Well, do I have to accept this?" bullshit in order to endorse open science like why do i have to put up with some guy being like an open misogynist in order to put up with open science and and it's not that i don't see that that problem i just think well you just are going to have to put up with it almost with whatever you do like that's just a feature of most institutions like and most like i mean most groups will have an element of it but often yeah. also the it's like this the accusations are completely unfair Again, I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious. It's like the invisible forces of like power stability or something like that. But the um, but yeah, a lot of the time the charges are total bullshit. Like this time. Um, yeah, and and this this gets us to a conversation that we had when we were talking about the English department at Cornell changing their name. And you know, my mm-hmm. like the concern of mine is always that like rather than fight the real fight, um, it suffices yeah. to call out. You know, to to go on some some calling out of 
whoever yeah. for whatever misstep and and then you've done your job. Yeah. And purely cosmetic change. Yeah. Yeah. But I also have just in general, I don't like the whole take to Twitter to shit talk. I think it would be funny if like w- like Will t- texted his friends and said, look at this fucking guy and like made fun of Lackens right. just behind closed doors. Fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you guys did to <laughs> like me. We do. <laughs> but we have to now amplify it. And now we're amplifying. Uh, we shouldn't well, put a link we won't put a link to Will Gervais's that's right you have to google it yourself you have to find it organically <laughs> uh, we don't want to amplify that kind of uh, divisiveness and anti-reform that's right um, alright all right. well let's save Dr. Seuss for some other time I'm sure that's uh, are you even allowed to say Dr. Seuss now <laughs> Like, isn't that rhymes? Yeah. Isn't that racist to say Dr. <laughs> Seuss just to even like know that you <laughs> that he exists? Uh, there's a whole yeah. There's yeah. I, we should talk about. We'll save it for later. But there, there's something I have. To, I want to get off my chest eventually about Dr. Seuss. But, yeah. What? No, you got to say it now. Is it- um, part of what tires me about culture wars is the treatment of things as equivalent that ought not be equivalent, and so it gets to the calibration thing that we've talked about before. Like there's some racist shit in Dr. Seuss books, and if they decide to not publish it. Eh, you know, like maybe you wish that they didn't, but like that's very different from uh, like appropriating an MLK tweet. And that's very different from being accused of rape. Like they're all the, like some of these things ought to be complained about and they're, and, and we should talk about them. Some of these things are a complete waste of time and they're performative. And the problem with the whole thing together, these, like what we're calling these culture wars is that it stops people from looking specifically at these things and saying, is this a justified complaint or is this one? Like we right. just all complain about it all. Like the woke laughter, this, the white supremacist right. And, and we lump all those things together when I actually think that you should not publish things with like Chinaman rice bowl chopstick heads. Like, I, you know, right. fine. And it's, a, it's worth having like a real discussion about that rather than just um, bitching about it on, on yeah. Twitter. Like, but like, you know, if you could actually have that conversation, that would be good. But that's not what sells And if you look at, like, one of the things, like, if you go to The Atlantic or you go to, like, you know, these politics kind of politics slash culture journals that give, like, a ranking of what are the most popular articles, it's all, like, if if one of these comes out, it's always going to be up in the most popular, most clicked on articles. And they're not measured sort of, all right, let's weigh this case on its merits because that's interesting. I didn't think of like Dr. Seuss and that book that nobody's ever heard of, but that probably (laughs) contains like, you know, uh, ridiculously racist from today's standards images. Like it is, you know, this is uh, the apocalypse. And (laughs) we have- It's it's terrible. It's so draining. It's so depressing to me. This is what what the internet economy has become. (laughs) But it's so energizing to my stepmother. (laughs) <laughs> so weird. I, I don't think I'm bothered like I get annoyed by people who make too much of it you know and yeah. even that I'm kind of over because like I, I don't even know anymore you know it's my fault for being on Twitter like Twitter is such a small <laughs> right. small small percentage of all people and you know the people who complain the most get on there and and I like there is enough <laughs> good about Twitter that keeps me on but like I have no filter for culture wars. I don't know how to get rid of them. But like I you know, have what, the magic button: mute James Lindsay, yeah. mute yeah. <laughs> uh, like just mute all of those people. He would I'm be like, so sad to hear you say that. Yeah. <laughs> he would he would be yeah. devastated. <laughs> I know, but he's just gonna have to find some way to to come to terms with it. Right. All right. Uh, we'll be back to talk about dreams. 
our dreams for a better future. We have I'm trying so hard not to say I have a dream. <laughs> Just say it. <laughs> this episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by our continuing sponsor, BetterHelp. Look, every probably every one of us is uh, could use some therapy. Um, you might be in a particular part of your life where you could really talk to somebody, but it's always difficult. You know, find a therapist in your town. You need word of mouth. You need to be able to schedule and visit that therapist. BetterHelp is there for exactly this kind of situation. They're there across all 50 states, across the world. Chances are you can reach out to BetterHelp. So if you're feeling particularly depressed or anxious or stressed or angry, or you just want to make your life more about flourishing, you want to increase your happiness, all you have to do is go to betterhelp.com, sign up, fill out some forms, letting them know what your issues are. They'll assign you a licensed professional therapist that is used to dealing in those particular issues. You can always change if you don't like them, but in 24 hours, you'll be talking to somebody. You can talk to them over the phone. You can talk to them uh, via text or video chat. Um, again, this is secure and convenient. These are licensed professionals. It's affordable compared to many options. And if you can't afford it, financial aid is available. So if you're feeling like therapy might be something you're looking for now and you're listening to this, you should really feel encouraged and feel free to go to betterhelp.com slash VBW. If you're a very bad Wizards listener and you use that code, you'll get 10% off of your first month with the discount code VBW. Again, that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for once again sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time in the podcast where we like to take a moment to thank everybody who has uh, just been involved with with our podcast in emailing us, in in tweeting us, in getting into discussions. Uh, we really appreciate all of that. It's as we often say, it's what keeps us going. Um, we would like to hear from you. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. We say this a lot, but I'm just especially feeling guilty because I've gotten some really nice emails lately, and we read them all. Uh, we just we really do. We it wish feeds we had us. the time to yeah, it really does to to respond to them all. Um, but especially in the thick of the semester, it's tough. Um, but we appreciate it. You can also tweet to us at Very Bad Wizards or at Tamler and at Peas if you want to engage in uh, deep discussions or or light or heavy mockery of us you can go to reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards um and engage with the community there uh you can check out our instagram page just very bad wizards you can listen and rate us on apple music um we appreciate that 
uh, especially the ones that keep our average up from the people who yeah. give us the ones. If you're so. one of those people who's going <laughs> to complain about us being too woke, like, get a girlfriend. <laughs> um, that wasn't a very woke thing to say. Uh, so, um, and, and listen, subscribe on Spotify and maybe the word for our podcast can get out and we can grow. Um, and we really appreciate all of that. Thank you so much for all of the time and effort you put into engaging with us and with the community. And if you would like to support us in more tangible ways, you can give us one time or recurring donation on, on PayPal. You can, uh, buy some of our merch, which is available. I actually got an email from a listener, Dave, that was just directly to my email asking if there were any coffee cups that oh, are going to be available. You know, Cotton Bureau doesn't do coffee cups, but I would really love a coffee cup. So, so I'm going to look and see if there's a, a good company that makes like quality yeah. coffee cups. Yeah. Um, but all of our t-shirts now, the ones that we love and that our listeners seems to love are uh, at Cotton Bureau and you can find all of this on the support page of our website. Finally, the, our favorite thing that you can do is to become one of our Patreon supporters um, at any tier of support. You will get ad-free episodes. You will also get Dave's Beats, um, four, soon five volumes of Dave's Beats. You will get, if you are a $2 and up subscriber, you will get bonus episodes. We, I think we've pretty much settled on our next one, right? Um, Sopranos College. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sopranos College. Look for some Sopranos-related bonus content <laughs> very soon um, on Patreon. And if you're a $5 and up listener, you'll get all of our... Brothers Karamazov episodes delivered straight to your feed and you'll also get to select our listener selected episode and so help me God uh, the, I'm going to put out the call for nominations we need it we are uh, you know we're, <laughs> we struggle for episode topics uh, we always find one we tip that we like but it, it's hard and, and this is one great way for us to supercharge that and, ha and reward our $5 and up uh, listeners um, by allowing them to select what we do and that's always a really popular episode so we should just have we should just crowdsource our like the producing job for this podcast you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> we should i mean look at what your dream tweet did actually that's what i was gonna say yeah that's i should have said thank you to everybody um on that if anybody's listening because i tweeted out ideas for articles about dreams and we got so many suggestions that it was a little overwhelming but but good shit just good shit Really good, Jen. So, yeah. So, thank you, everybody. Um, all right. So, let's go to our main topic. We wanted to do an episode about dreams. You tweeted out a request, and we got a ton of unbelievable stuff, as you mentioned. And we settled on this article called Enter the Super Sensorium, and it's on the, uh, the website and the magazine The Baffler, which is a, yeah, which is a really good um, magazine. I wasn't familiar with it at all, um, but that's because I'm unlearned. <laughs> or just kind of like it's a little too left for you. Yeah, maybe. It's a little maybe. too threatening to your position of power uh, and your privilege. Well, as you point out, it's it's not um, – it's the kind of left that is super elite and entitled is not the kind that I am, you know, coming from my <laughs> – my background. We don't. We don't know that the baffler is <laughs> is one of the things we're supposed to read. But yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you know, when we were looking through all of those articles on dreams, it's a it's a little hard to choose something that because there's a lot of scientific work on dreams. And in this article, Eric Hole Hell. I don't know how to pronounce the the German. Is it a German word that I'm? Is uh, he German? H, H yeah. H O E L. Seems like yeah. Oh, yeah. H O E L. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hole. Hole. Hell. Hell. He takes the science of dreams and builds an argument. And um, that argument goes through a whole bunch of different discussions about art and what it is. But I, I'm going to just summarize that. And, and in the process, I think we'll talk a lot about what dreams are and the science behind dreams. So Hull builds this argument based on a particular theory of why we dream. Um, and the argument that he's proposing is that we should distinguish between art and entertainment. And we should ensure that good art, which we'll get into the differences between good and art and entertainment, should be produced and maintained and really distinguished from mere entertainment. Um, his argument rests on a few assumptions, and I think the most interesting one is this theory that he's proposing for why we dream. And he's a neuroscientist, neuroscientist and has actually written um, articles on this theory of dreams. We have nothing but praise for neuroscience <laughs> exactly. in this podcast. Uh, you know, this is a case where somebody has taken the neuroscience and I think done something interesting with it. So maybe yeah. we should champion this. Uh, yes, this absolutely. Kind of, yeah. So, uh, so the argument is that uh, dreams might serve a necessary biological function and that current theories of dreams that just focus on like the, the neurological functioning of like REM sleep and its role in memory seem to be ignoring some the really important aspect of dreams, which, uh, which he thinks is the phenomenology of these dreams. Like those theories just don't, unlike, say, Freud's theories, these neuroscientific theories don't usually have much to say about the actual content of dreams. So he argues that maybe the function that dream serves is to present the mind with a set of experiences that are sufficiently different from the ones we have in our everyday lives. And he, he says this is in order to avoid a problem called overfitting which is a statistical problem where uh, a predictive model becomes too dependent on the data it's been given, the data it's been trained on. So it does actually a poor job of predicting novel data when it encounters it. Can you give me an example? Like, because this part, I wanted to understand this better. Yeah. Right? Is there another example of overfitting that would help illustrate this problem? Yeah, I, I myself was looking... Um, a little bit more into the problem of overfitting because it apparently happens a lot with neural nets that are trained up on a data set. So the, the, the idea is that if you um, train up a model or if you use as the data that you're building a model or an algorithm to, to if you're using it to predict something new, um, what can happen is you can focus too much on the details of that data and that will end up getting in the way of the future predictions. So so I think one example that I was reading was, um, imagine if you want, if I want to build an algorithm that predicts what movies and TV shows you buy on Amazon or books. Um, and so I input whatever I know about you, like your geographical location, your education. I also input date and time and whatever, color of your house. Those things in, in the original data set, it might turn out that those things are correlated with your movie and TV purchases. Um, but that will just be a weird quirk of that particular data set because it's not really a causal, it's not playing a causal role. It's just, you know, it's one of those quirks in a limited data set. You might find a correlation between the time of day that you order in your particular time zone and, and what the content of what you buy. So now if I try, if I say, oh, I have a model that predicts really well. And one of the big predictors is time of day that you ordered. But now I'm trying to predict uh, on a completely novel data set, someone in a different time zone, a different country those things will end up not being predictive at all. So okay. the model has been overfit by using the details of the original data set at the expense of good generalization. 
Right. So, so the, it, it results in some weird quirky errors um, that are a result of the limited set that you train a model on. The kind of idiosyncratic like um, aspects of the data That's that right. isn't relevant. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, you know, when you're doing these learning, uh, these deep learning things, you often don't know what they're using to predict. Like, it's kind of like a black box. You're just training it up on this data set. So you have no idea what it's using. Right. So you can't just look at it on its face and say, well, of course, date and time right. wouldn't, you know, wouldn't, you don't know what it's using. And so, uh, so what he argues is that uh, what dreams are doing is that they're expanding the set that our brains are training up on. Because essentially life is boring and predictable and, and for all sorts of reasons, we don't experience that much diversity. Right. But in order to have a good adaptive brain that can tell, you know, that can, that can do a good job of navigating the environment and predicting novel things that it hasn't encountered, it's good for the brain to have uh, some experiences, quote unquote, that, um, that, are f that give our brains flexibility. And so he argues that this is a need that dreams are serving and, and he points to, to some research on dreams that show that, you know, when, when you don't dream, you fail, you start failing at various kinds of cognitive tasks like generalization tasks. Um, and he thinks that that need to have that novel experience set, like that, that, uh, scape that, what does he call it? The, um, the, the experiential space. world line or so, the, yeah something like that like the 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 whole state mind space state, like a state space state space of possible experiences right yeah. um and so he says that's just a, a need that our brain has and dreams seem to fulfill that need but like many other things um there are other ways to feed the brain in this way and he thinks that fiction Right, telling stories about things that we haven't experienced and reading stories and seeing movies and all that stuff is doing the job that dreams would do and therefore uh, sort of providing us, our, our brains, with even more uh, data to, to avoid this problem of overfitting. In the end, he thinks, though, that that role, that function that art is supposed to serve um, might have been thwarted by the fact that much of our entertainment has become predictable and is sort of lowest common denominator and it's predictable and it's trite, uh, it's, you know, tropey, bad fiction. He, he thinks they're blurred copies of the original form of what art was supposed to do. And even though they might give us the satisfaction that comes from satisfying this biological craving, much like porn or fast food, it's faking. It's not really giving you what you need. And so, you know, we have a biological drive to fuck because it helps us reproduce, but we can spend all our time looking at porn and satisfying that particular need at the expense of the function. And he thinks that this is what just the term he uses, entertainment versus art. He thinks that's what entertainment might be. So while it might sound hoity-toity to try to distinguish between art and entertainment, he says maybe it's actually a really important thing to distinguish because art is in this, like, it's in this particular kind of, of space that gives us that novel experience um, that at the end of the day, might be really good for our brains and for our existence in this world. So, fuck you, MCU. Martin Scorsese was right. Um, fuck was, all of you. I was about, I, you know, I made that connection when I was reading this. I was like, this is, ju <laughs> this is just going to be a, a way that he argues against Marvel. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. It is exactly the way that people argue against Marvel as being just homogenized, like, you know, feeding people what they want. Like, not terrible, like, like really competent at doing that. But yeah. in the same way that, like, McDonald's French fries are really actually good to, you know, they're, they're, they're tasty to eat, but, like, 
Yeah. That's the criticism. Right, uh, right. And it's separate from art. A mild defense, which is that um, the the difference between Marvel Universe and McDonald's is that it's more like a McDonald's that every once in a while has really healthy food. And you might miss out on the good parts of the Marvel Universe um, if you just don't enter, you know, the Marvel Universe. But I, but maybe So you think like Marvel, you, they're like the McRib? <laughs> Is that what you're yeah, they're, they're like that, you know, when they every once in a while have an attempt at offering a healthy menu, but nobody yeah. buys it. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> the salad. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not going to defend it too much. <laughs> yeah, so this is, it's a very wide-ranging, really cool article. I think you summed up the argument really well. There is a couple of different parts of it. There's just the the way he understands dreams, which maybe we can start out talking about and then see to what extent I think you know, like that same argument applies to art. And then, yeah. um, so here's one question I had about the way he understands the purpose of dreams. So he, he talks about the phantasmagorical aspects of dreams. And as he says, many dreams could be short stories by Kafka, Borges, mm-hmm. Marquez, or some other fabulist. And I guess when it's, when dreams are like that, I'm wondering how it actually fulfills the function that he says our brains crave. Because if things that are impossible are happening in our dreams, it doesn't seem like that's something that will help us. We don't have to deal with impossible situations in real life. You know, so he gives the example of somebody who's falling. Like, and you often have dreams that you're falling and it would be good to like, given that we don't often fall from really high places, it would just be good to have an, a, like for our brains or, a, you know, to have at least that experience so we know how to behave if uh, that happens to us in the future. But then there's these other parts of dreams that th- there's no way it could happen because they're impossible. Like people are just changing from one person right. to another. And so, <laughs> right. so. So why does the fast, like, why are they so fabulous? Why are they so much like Borges if this is what their function is? Right. I think that the argument has to be something like this. And I I think he alludes to something like this, which is that that, for instance, that like rapid changing of location or person is, is a kind of a category violation that while that thing might not happen, what it might be encouraging is a flexible use of boundaries and categories. And that flexibility is what those complete phantasmagoric elements are doing. They are, it's like, you know, it's like uh, working out really hard with, with uh, like a weight machine that only exercises your triceps or something. Like in real world, it would never, you would never need just that one muscle, um, but, uh, but it might just serve. I mean, that's not a great metaphor. But no, I think it is actually. Yeah. I think it's a really good metaphor. It's like you don't need to do push-ups in everyday life. Like right. you're not going to come across a situation unless you join the Marines or something where <laughs> like it's going to be really important that you perform push-ups. But you might be in situations where like you need the strength that comes from doing push-ups. Right. We, we evolved push-ups for 11th grade gym class. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to pass. So to get that. Remember the president's thing? Yeah, the presidential <laughs> physical fitness that yeah. I never got. I was like, fuck the president. Um, yeah. yeah. I actually got mine, so I should have had mine. Oh, I could God. do one pull, the one pull-up that was required. I could do uh, I couldn't do a pull-up until I was like 22. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so I think that that combined with kind of like what you might see as the, the natural, you know, he, he says a lot of these theories of dreams are just about like the brain 
shitting out like information that it's acquired throughout the day um, or like a cleanup process. Like there are reasons to, to think that it might, the phenomenology might pose some like weird, weird um, experiences that just end up helping for this other reason. They might be weird for other reasons though. I, you know, I, who knows? Like if it's, right. if your brain is just kind of shitting out stuff, then the content might be as crazy as it wants, as long as it's serving this overfitting protection. Right, I see. Like, as long as it's serving that purpose, then right. it can also go into these wacky places because right. of, like, you were attracted to your mother or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of the theories he considers is this idea that we process the information from that day. Like, that's right. what our dreams are for. It's like we have we have these new experiences that we need like some time to just kind of assimilate and integrate with our past experiences. And that's what dreams do. And he says he's never found that very compelling because like, that's so not what dreams typically <laughs> right. are there. They have nothing to do with what you just uh, did that day. Typically, unless, you know, uh, right. unless it's a very strange connection, but like that seems like it doesn't fit the phenomenology at all. Yeah, and that's a it's a point that I hadn't considered, you know, having read about like this theory of dreams. Um so this is the theory that dreams are for memory consolidation and what what it ought to to predict is that you're getting this sort of replay of daily events. Um and it's true that my dreams aren't always like stuff that happened to, to me during the day, but sometimes they are. Like sometimes shit works its way into my dreams. Like but sometimes it's like something I've watched Right. So like if I'm I'm watching the Sopranos or like I might dream that I was in a forest and I murdered somebody and they ran away, right. you know, or whatever. Like um it does work its way into it, but um but I, I sort of agree that this is not a very if if that's the case, then there doesn't seem to be very good evidence for it from our dreams. Um and yeah. And then and then our dreams will be boring and right. They right. it would just Which, be like repetitions right. of things we have experienced. So like I had a dream. Like, uh, you know, now I've been sort of paying attention to my dreams a little bit since we yeah. had the idea of doing this. And there was a dream I had like four days ago or five days ago where I was living in like a dorm room and Scotty Pippen came to the dorm room and was being uh, really nice. Uh, you know, like he wanted to sign some things. Now, to be clear, I'm not a Scotty Pippen fan, really. I'm not a Bulls fan. I'm like, there's no reason for Scotty Pippen to be in right. my dreams uh, that I'm aware of. He was really nice. Then my dogs got out of the dorm room, and I was worried that they would go, like, attack, you know, or bark at children. Um, but then they turned into children. And so, like, <laughs> so none of that is stuff that I'm worried about or that happened to me that day. Um, I haven't thought about Scottie Pippen in my consciousness, <laughs> like, uh, since we watched the Jordan watched doc. The, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously dogs don't change into children, although I do sometimes worry that, like, Charlie loves to bark at, like, two-year-olds that walk by our, our <laughs> house. Um, so probably that part is. Right. I don't know. So it's like, that doesn't seem like memory, that doesn't seem like memory consolidation. No, me. in fact, point. like, even though yeah. you have a memory of Scottie Pippen, that right. wouldn't be the memory that needs consolidating because you didn't right. just acquire it. You weren't just having thoughts about Scottie Pippen, right? Consolidation ought to be what, right. what's going on with new information um, that needs to be sort of organized and stored, you know, in, in, in your long-term memory. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that seems right that it can't – at least it can't be just for that, right? There's, 
Um, if it's for anything at all, it doesn't seem like it could be just for that. Um, there are a couple other theories, and I don't know if he discuss. I don't think he discusses these in the article, but I'll put a, a link to another review article that he wrote called "The Overfitted Brain: Dreams Evolved to Assist Generalization," where he kind of goes through a, a theories of dreams, like modern modern theories of dreams, with a little discussion of the Freudian view, and um, he talks about the another kind of popular view, which is that dreams are for preparing yourself for real real world problems so there's like a sort of a simulation for what what you do in the real world or what you might do which right. sounds like it might be kind of similar to this overfitting uh, uh theory that he's proposing but it's it's not as broad so it's it's more constrained it's like you're actually simulating things that you might actually do and it wouldn't fit the bill for the overfitting hypothesis because it's crucial for the overfitting hypothesis that you have these weird category violating phantasmagoric experiences and this would be more like just just like you're going through shit that you might actually do in the real world and so he doesn't think that that's the best uh, theory oh so but i must have misinterpreted that i thought he was he was sort of saying this is this is an example like falling or being hunted or something like that is an example of dealing with the overfitting because a Number one, it's not something that you've experienced. And number two, it actually, unlike dogs turning into children, is something right. that you might, like, that might be relevant. So you would yeah. want that piece of data in, in the data set. It would be relevant. So, so I think what he's saying is that um, while those things, like, while there might be actions that you would, re that you would really perform in, in, like, a straightforward fashion, that um, the cognitive role of like making your your mind more flexible is served more by the the fantastic Fast. elements okay. of the dreams than like the so I think he has let me see he said um, you're right uh, indeed the phenomenology of dreams as sparse and hallucinatory and fabulous make it unlikely that strategies or abilities or preparations that originate in dreams would work at all in the real world um, but he's okay with the the simulation part like i think maybe he thinks of it as a subset like in some cases it does prepare you for real world action um right. yeah yeah he says it might even be that our experiential state spaces are use it or lose it just like right. muscle mass and dreams are like a frenetic gas that counteracts the the like monotony of the brain's experience like he's a really he, this is very well written it's well like, written i wanted I, I meant to say that at the beginning and ask you what you thought in general of, of it but i found like it, i found it to be like a one of the I, I wasn't expecting to be glued to the to the article in the way that I was when I was reading it. Totally. Um, yeah. Um, um, you know, there's there is a little bit of an aspect of I think real world. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I'll I'll use an embarrassing life experience of mine. I remember dreaming that I kissed people, like kissed girls, before I ever got to kiss a girl in the in in real life, and it what I feel like it was not off. Like I mean, I know what skin to my lips feels like and right. it, and i think that it was uh like when i finally did kiss someone in whatever you know 2012 um i it didn't feel so foreign it didn't feel so weird right so um, it actually can do i i agree with that there's a lot of times i've been dreaming of things that then ended up happening and yeah and it's hard to know um can you give like a briefest summary of freud's theory of dreams since that's not yeah. for now what we're going to talk about <laughs> right right so some somebody on the twitter thread said like oh you can't just discard freud 
and I was like, the point is that I, there's plenty about Freud that I've read and I, and I know. So I was looking for stuff other than Freud, but yeah, Freud so. has dominated the, you know, like theories of dreams. And what he says basically is that dreams are a, what he called a royal road to the unconscious. And he believed, as we've talked about, I think before, um, he, he had this theory that the, 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 the human mind is uh, segmented and you have the id, which is all unconscious content. It's stuff that's not available to your conscious mind at all, but is the source of energy, psychic energy. And the id is built on the pleasure principle. It just wants what it wants. Your ego has to filter out all that stuff and convert it through defense mechanisms and other ways to actually act in the world. The ego is driven by the reality principle. But the huge, uh, you know, in his iceberg metaphor, most of the mind, he thinks, is in this unconscious land. And that is just built on desire and the desire for pleasure. And so he thought that when you're dreaming, your conscious defenses, like the ego defenses, are not active. They're, so they can't convert the content of the id into the, the, the stuff that you would think about in everyday life. And so he thought that these were like, like uh, you, you got a window into your unconscious mind. And this is why many people refer to it as wishes as dream, uh, dreams as wish fulfillment, because he thought uh, since the id is driven by desire, what you dream is somehow a representation of your desire. Now he thought it wasn't, the, it wasn't entirely pure because you have what he called the manifest content, which is the the on the face of it content of the dream, like I was Scotty Pippen and then there were dogs and there were kids. But he thought that via interpretation, like if I talked to you and I said, well, tell me what you think about Scotty Pippen. And then we got to talking about like how Scotty Pippen is somehow related to uh, your uh, disdain right. for teams that defeated the Celtics and your relationship with your father when you would like watch Celtics games together. And right. then in the 90s, the Bulls took over and that sucked. Then you could get to like, oh, you wanted to talk to your dad, right? right, you, right. And, and so he thought that through this process of interpretation, in fact, he explicitly compared himself to Joseph of the Bible who interpreted the dreams of his brother yeah. and the king. Um, right. he, he compared himself to Joseph because um, he was also a Jew. Um, I don't know yeah, if you know, right. you knew that. <laughs> yeah. um, so dreams for him were wish fulfillment. They're the, it's the royal road to the unconscious. In if you do the right kind of work in talking about your dreams, you can figure out what it is that your unconscious mind is desiring, and that can What's driving you therapeutically. Yeah. It can help you uh, in a lot of ways. For it thought, right? Because making the unconscious conscious, he thought, would make lives more happy. It would just be it would just be a better life. Right. Um, so I, yeah, if you is shit on, like it's shit on by most people who study dreams. But I think as as is our attitude toward Freud you can throw out the baby with the bathwater because like the thi the thing that I like about the Freudian view of dreams is that sometimes there is emotional content to dreams that really does say something about what's going on in my life. And it's often not at all obvious to me what that is. Yeah, you know? no, totally. Right. It's the common thing with Freud. He's getting at something true. It's just that like with the Scotty Pippen, like it's given that he's not saying that I have this unconscious desire to have Scotty Pippen be a nice guy and sign a jersey or, or something like right. given that he's not saying that and there's all these other connections that have to be made it seems unfalsifiable like you know right. to say like like how are we supposed to know that 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 
that the interpretation is the right one. And probably he has, I'm assuming, some sort of answer to that. But um, I think his answer is, and it's, it's worth just briefly mentioning, I think that the the error is in thinking that there would be sort of universal symbols and like universal ways of interpreting dreams. And that really what you, if you have any shot at all at, at capturing if any meaning, if there is at all a meaning in your, in your dreams, it would have to be like through, it's idiosyncratic, right? It's what right. Scottie Pippen and dogs and kids mean to you. There's not... Right. You know, Jung might have actually believed that there were universal right. symbols that would work their way into everyone's dreams, but but I think right. Freud would be like, don't, you know, <laughs> he'd so be I like, oh, classic yeah. hero narrative, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? No, I guess that's right, and it's the process of interpretation that brings that out, and you know, like it's going to be different for me than it is for you, and and it's, uh, and I actually think that there's something to that's that's very interesting about that. It's just not in the realm of, I guess, empirical verifiability yeah, it's, exactly. it's in the realm of something else but that doesn't mean that it's not actually onto something and um and enriching i actually think you know this is why a lot of freudians are heavily into art interpretation too right. and like hermeneutics and that whole field like it it's 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 relevant right it's through the process of interpretation that you get a lot of the value of the thing itself yeah, and like just like just think about if what I said about Scottie Pippen and your dad, which was just off the top of my head, if that right. had all resonated with you and made you think about that connection, then it might serve a purpose to talk about your dreams in this way with somebody. And even you know, like even that alone, like just because you can't, just because I can't verify that this is actually what Scottie Pippen meant in your dream, if it resonated with you and you had an emotional right. reaction to it and you talk about it, then. Um, then why would that be a bad thing to do, right? If right. I told you and you were like, whoa, Pizarro was way off on that one, then maybe not, right? But like yeah. maybe in the hands of a good therapist where you're talking and digging deep into your life, it might actually be a great way to start talking about things that are going right. on. Yeah, That's exactly like how Tony Soprano stopped having panic attacks, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, I want to watch that so badly. Okay, so but what you said just then about dreams telling you something about where you're emotionally at, like something yeah. about your emotional life at that time, I think is totally right. Or it's yeah. true for me. And I think so too. In fact, I ignore, I ignore a lot of my dreams because they probably have <laughs> emotional content that I don't want to deal with. How, like how, where are you with dreams? Like how do you, well, yeah, how do you respond I'm to a, your dreams? I'm, like yeah. what kind of dreams, do you remember them really well? I'm a super vivid dreamer. I love dreams. I used to, as a kid, just look forward to going to sleep just so I could dream. And I, I remember a lot of my dreams, less so if, I'm, if I drink, obviously, or if I take Benadryl or some sleeping medication, which actually is like a big bummer for me because I, you, I end up forgetting my dreams more. Um, but I often wake up with such vivid, vivid, uh, like I laugh a lot in my dreams. Like I'll wake up my partner sometimes like from laughing. Um, and, um, I just, it's, it's always been like a big part of my life. Like I was telling you before, no one gives a shit about like the idiosyncrasies of each other's dreams. But like, for me, it's a huge part of my experience in this world. Like I love them. Yeah. I'm not like, I wouldn't say that, that I'm there just because probably I do drink like a lot and <laughs> also take like a lot of sleeping medication sometimes. But, um, but I, you know, like I'll, I'll rem I'm also a fairly light sleeper, which is good for remembering your dreams, I think, because, yeah. Yeah. um, because if you wake so, up during REM, I don't know, like I used to have recurring dreams, like when I was, uh, in college and a little bit after college, 
that were clearly just reflecting a lot of guilt that I had about the way I acted in the last year of my mom's life or the last couple of years of my mom's life. And like, I would have dreams that were, you didn't need a Freudian psychoanalyst <laughs> right. to say like, you really, you, you feel bad about that. And, and, and like, you know, a lot of times if somebody has died, at least for me, the dream is about them coming back to life and you like dealing with yeah. that and like how and you're responding those, yeah. to it. And then I remember after my dad died, my dreams about him were so much more like peaceful and friendly. And, and it mm. was just a total, I think, I think product of the fact that I was more at peace with the way like I interacted with him in the last few years of his life than I was with my mom. And so I was able to, and also it wasn't, you know, he was 91, my mom was 41. So it's like not as, as, as terrible a thing objectively. Um, and, and like, so I would have like friendly dreams, like he would be back and like, we would hang out and it would be nice, you know? Right. Um, and then I think like when I'm in a really good space emotionally and mentally, like my dreams are just fun. Like they're just, yeah. And yeah, there might be like women or there might be, you know, various things. Um, but like, and then when things are stressed and when things, you know, then I'll have, those anxiety dreams yeah. and uh so i think it it is a pretty well correlated i think with where i'm at that's yeah. interesting yeah anxiety dreams i have like these recurring dreams that often involve my teeth falling out that are just pure anxiety dreams or you know or like yeah, to that's still like a have standard one right yeah it is and i've, and I've had have... it once recently because i <laughs> like only once i learned that that was a thing it's so weird it's so weird that that would that would be the thing um or like you know uh Everybody I know who who's ever had to lecture has dreams yeah, like you God. completely forgot that you had to lecture and or you know. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like I have that so often that it's not even like I don't even get that stressed about it because like I think my brain, like he says, like my brain's just used to it now. Right. So I'm like, I'll have to figure it out in the dream, you know. Like I don't even get that anxious about it. Uh um, you know, there's one part that I that, about dreams that I want to talk about that I think is consistent with this overfitting hypothesis, at least. So, so like, hear me out and tell me if you think that, that I'm right. So it, lucid dreams, um, yeah. there was a, there's some recent articles on lucid dreams that were kind of interesting to, um, the, about communicating with lucid dreamers. But I remember when I was in high school, I read or early college, late high school, early college, I read a book on lucid dreaming and it had happened to me before. Um, Usually, like, if I notice that I'm doing something impossible, like, I'll become aware of the dream. Yeah. Uh, but in reading this book, I became much more likely to lucid dream. Like, while I was reading and thinking about it, I would, I would have lots of lucid dreams. And once I would notice that I'm in the dream, sometimes it was so clear to me that I was in a dream that I could say, like, my name is David Pizarro. I'm in bed in whatever Riverside. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, um, that degree of lucidity would happen. And then I would just try to fuck around in my dreams. I would be like, let me see if I can fly. Let me see if I can have sex with somebody. Let me see. Um, And in my life, I've had like amazing lucid dreams. One time I remember I had a night full of lucid dreams where I was, I was like doing experiments in my dreams. I was looking at details. Like I remember walking down a shop and looking at uh, someone selling watches and I was looking to see the details of the watch. And I was thinking, holy shit, my brain is, is like creating this. Like, it's amazing. (laughs) But I'm a genius. Yeah, I'm a genius. <laughs> Mom was right. Um, and what I what I remember during the time that I was lucid dreaming a lot was that I became fatigued with it. Like it didn't seem to be doing whatever dreams are supposed to be doing. And as I was thinking about it 
in the context of this article, I was thinking, well, what I'm doing in the lucid dreams is thwarting like the loose connections and the weird fantastic elements and imposing my conscious mind on my environment. I was trying to control it and create order. And that seemed to have had some effect on like even how restful I, I felt. Like it felt like I hadn't really rested well if I had lucid dreamed a lot. And maybe because what I was you doing were was, taking too much control. Yeah. Maybe I was defeating this this purpose of dreams, um, right. which is to just let it go, let it loose. Yeah. And I was turning my dreams into like shitty Netflix dramas. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, and then you weren't as as rested as a result of that. So yeah. there's a thing in meditation where um you're really not supposed to interfere with like you know, uh, the, whatever the, the is going on, the sensations in your body, you're right. not supposed to try to resist it or try to control it or trying to wish it wasn't there or, and, and like the goal is to just have it happen to you. And when you can do that, and you know, obviously you can be more or less successful on a degree, it is a more relaxing act, a much more relaxing activity. So it would make sense, you know, right. similar kind of thing is you're, if you're not, if you're just letting your body do its thing and the environment do its thing, then that's like a, a, a very restful state to be in. But if, if you're trying to take charge, then, then, um, then you're interfering with that. So that, you know, it fits with whatever, yeah, you know, like the, the meditation. That's totally. That's stuff. a, that's a, that's a connection I hadn't thought of. It totally is right. That's exactly, it's resisting. Yeah. Like, and, and resisting is work and it's trying to impose all of your experience and, and desire onto what, what's going on. And you need to let go. I mean, I, I've experienced in the little meditation I've done, I've experienced how difficult that is. Like, yeah. like you're just working against it. You're just so used to working against, you want to yeah. control the content. But then sometimes you do get into a state where you're just like, for whatever reason, I think you also get into the state, like right before you're falling asleep. Yeah. Um, where you're just letting it all happen. And it's like, that's a, such a beautiful feeling. Um, and especially like, like a relaxing, energizing kind of feeling. Um, I will say like lucid dreaming is funny because I've had a lot of dreams where I was like, I'm dreaming, right? You know, yeah. and that's, um, but then I've had a couple, and I, this was only after I started reading about lucid dreaming. So I think it is, let's like you say, like, you know, you have to become familiar with it right. will make it more possible. But I remember like the one or two times that I've had one where I can like be in the driver's seat a little bit. I remember thinking it was pretty fun. Yeah, uh, it's like, like a that video you game. could fly like <laughs> I could fly like I'm like, OK, I can fly. All right. And and, and the best thing is like I can just go wherever I want. Yeah. Go this way and we'll yeah. go that way. And like uh, it was uh, it was great. Like I, I just but I, you know, it's only happened to me a handful of times. Um, and yeah. I it always is, enjoy it. When it, it, is, it is fun. It's amazing. It's like it's like VR, but your brain is creating it all. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you're just and you kind of know that this is happening and yeah. that it's better take advantage of it. You know, I remember telling I remember in one of my lucid dreams being in a classroom and telling everybody that it sucks for them is that they're all just products of my dream right now. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Let's, should we? Um, yeah. Let's talk, like, should we talk, dive into the whole, I mean, the, the, the main thesis of this is that this is, says something about art. Yeah. And I found myself as I was reading it being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later on, I was like, well, does it really follow? Like, does anything uh, that what he's saying, like, is, does the defense of the hoity-toity follow from, from the neuroscience? Right. 
So um, he says, like, he has a section, outsourcing dreams. Right. And, like, you know, like, dreams can only do so much. So we've turned to art to, all, like, our brain also craves art because that's another way to, like, stop overfitting. Yeah. He says somewhere, you know, an interesting thought experiment, like, why do we care so much about fiction? You know, we could be creatures who only concern themselves with with things that were true. And we could, you can imagine a, a world of creatures where if you said, like, you know, there once was a guy who lived a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. They'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Just get back to like whatever, talking about what's here. Um, yeah. But we're not. We love we love this shit. Right. Yeah. And I think that alone is something is super interesting. Like and, and that yeah. needs explanation. We crave it. And um, and then his point is now the world is offering like a, a glut of it that it's never experienced. It used to be you had to like sit around the fire and listen to some guy like, you know, telling a story or right. something like that. And that happened like once a day at best. But now it's like at any point you can. Um, and so that's where it leads to this question of, well, then how do we decide what's what's good and, and, and what's bad? Um, what's good? What's fast food and what's healthy? Um, so but just about this idea that they're proxy dreams or like yeah. another way for us to dream. I wonder how this fits with the phantasmagorical element of dreams because a lot of the the art, now it's true that a lot of the art that has lasted or that we consider canon has a slightly phantasmagorical element to it. You know, Shakespeare has a lot of that. Homer has a lot of that. Um, the Greek tragedies have a lot of that. Um, and I think in Eastern traditions, they have a ton of that. It, like They're very dreamlike. But, you know, it seems like people are hungry for friends and the office and <laughs> right. um, stuff that really isn't, you know, Lynchian in obvious ways. Right. So why, how, like, why is that the one that we find so delicious that we're so, um, you know, like McDonald's French fries? Like the, that's, that's what I didn't fully get from this. Yeah. I, you know, it's. It rests on, like, I think this assumption that that we can be tricked into thinking that something like Friends in the Office is providing us because it matches some features of fiction, which is, yeah, I am not Michael Scott. I do not have a job in that office. And so, and that is what we end up responding to and liking. That's, you know, the, the his, what he calls super stimuli. Um, and that, uh, that those things are like that dung beetle that just fucks bottle caps all day <laughs> right. because the bottle caps look like a mate. Um, that, that at least with bad art, like we're, our brains aren't sophisticated enough to be able to say, no, this is what would be the best for your mind to like read things that are kind of like real life, but, but just different enough that you can both follow the story and have like your mind expanded. So, but, but I mean, that, I guess like it, it, it seems like we could have gravitated towards more dreamlike, trashy fiction, you know, like, uh, right. than we have. We seem that the stuff that seems like it's the stuff that he wants to separate from art, the stuff that's entertainment, um, is, I guess, I mean, I guess Marvel has, you know, they, they, there's plenty of phantasmagorical elements to that, but there's a lot that's just, you know, Bob's Burgers or something. It's great. Right, right. You know, it's, but it's like, it, it, it's pretty ordinary. It's not dreamlike. Right. 
So I, you know, mm. it's an That's interesting, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting switch from dreams to fiction because I don't think that he thinks that they have to be dreamlike in necessarily in um right like i think he even wants it to be that like well when we create these narratives we're gonna like be imposing order we we just um are to to degrees we are going to include more of the like experiences that you've never had kind of art um or less of that and in that in that sense like you know, this, this all will turn on what, what you think is a good, good way of fulfilling this function. Because in some sense, like Marvel's complete phantasmagorical universe of like heroes and villains and intergalactic shit and superpowers And all and, this young in like, yeah. like up the ass like this. <laughs> yeah. That, that might actually be doing it, um, serving that role and more like, you know, reading, you know, whatever, like Anna Karenina is not. Maybe, right. you know, and, and maybe it turns like if the neuroscience is supposed to guide us, maybe we should watch more crazy Tom and Jerry cartoons and read less of, <laughs> uh, you know, like Tolstoy. Well, so I think there is an answer to that question. And it's actually one that I think involves interpretation, um, which we talked earlier about in reference to, to Freud and, and the value of dreams from his perspective. Um, but before we get there, there's this other piece of this argument that I don't think we've mentioned, which is the, uh, and, and it's actually a little confusing, but the idea is that art, as well as dreams, but especially art, this is what he, he says it's in reference to, is a way of kind of reinforcing our illusion of the self. So he right. says, like... He quotes Shakespeare, all the world is a stage and all the men and women are merely players. They have exits and entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. And he says, these different parts must act coherently together. Um, the temporal slices of a person's life must be coordinated as if each slice were a different individual because from the perspective of physics, they are. To organize the temporally disparate versions of us, we use a myth called the self. It creates a natural agreement among the different versions of us, enabling contigu contiguous behavior and solving coordination problems. You are a, pro a protagonist in a story told by a spatio-temporally disparate set of individuals. And what artificial fictions do, he says, um, it, uh, it, it helps us coordinate the frag fragments of ourselves that have been scattered across time. Um, uh, it exercises the experiential space. And so what do you think of this? This is another kind of aspect, uh, dimension of this argument is that it's helping us have a more unified sense of self, these fictions. I, I mean, I really, as with this whole article, I really like these arguments. Like, these are really, I think, interesting and creative arguments. I don't know. Like, that's, it It seems as if a lot of the work our minds uh, do is to organize this continuous sense of self from essentially a set of disparate experiences. I don't know, though, that fiction is what's doing that or storytelling is what's doing that. And it's not the other way around, is that our brains are so good at constructing a narrative about our existence that it then becomes good at creating narratives about other people's existence. I, you know, it's hard right. for me to, to be able to distinguish the direction the, yeah. of the causation. But I mean, mm -hmm. I guess, right. The idea is, you know, if you think of a novel, 
like say Anna Karenina, which you just referred to, and um, and you read about her and her journey throughout the text as well as these other characters, like that is a unified person and that helps us sort of consolidate right. our own selves. It is, it's, it's provocative, it's interesting, it's definitely picking up on something interesting. It's hard to know how plausible it is. Um, right. I mean, on the one hand, storytelling has been with us, it seems like, since the beginning. Like, yeah. we don't have a real sense of any human civilization that didn't have stories. But right. on the other hand, we don't know exactly why. Yeah, We don't know. And I don't mind that. You know, I, I haven't yeah. read from a scientist in a long, in a while. I haven't read such big thinking. Like, I don't know how to yeah. describe it. Like, this, this, it's pretty bold. And, yeah, but totally. it's, not bo it's not bold in a sloppy way. You know, like yeah, you can, you, right. there are people who, you know, who, who love telling these right. nifty stories about how the mind works, but like, this is, this is creative and this is yeah. building on, I think his understanding of science. The ambition is refreshing and yeah. to then like pull it off. Cause most people would never like try to come up with a theory of dreams, a theory of the self and uh, a theory of, like, of the role of fiction. And then yeah. also all leading to a, you know, defending a distinction between art and yeah. non-art. Like, that's that's a lot. Right. And, like, and it's not done in a grandiose way at all. It's not done. It's exactly. Just, exactly. Yeah. Um, let me read a little bit about the distinctions that he's trying to make between art and entertainment because I don't, I feel like I ha we've said it but not done a good job of describing what he thinks the dif distinction yeah. is. Um, so he says... Um, Entertainment is Lamarckian in its representation of the world. It produces copies of copies of copies until the image blurs. The artificial dreams we crave to prevent overfitting become themselves overfitted, self-similar, too stereotyped and wooden to accomplish their purpose. Schlock. While unable to fulfill their function just like the empty calories of candy, they still satisfy the underlying drive. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the works that we consider artful, if successful, contain a shocking realness. They return to the well of the world. Perhaps this is why, in a recent interview in The New Yorker, Nasgard declared that the duty of literature is to fight fiction. Artful narratives almost always have both a freshness and innate ambiguity. They represent while at the same time avoid overfitting via stereotype. A nudge in one direction and they can veer to kitsch. Another, a nudge in another and they become experimental and unduly alienating. Which is like, describes a lot of art <laughs> in inland empire <laughs> exactly i was gonna say lynch at his worst um, no, that's I, I love inland empire and that's blasphemy <laughs> they exist in an uncanny valley of familiarity the world of art is like a dream that some higher being more aesthetically sensitive more empathetic more intelligent is having and by extension we are having Existing at such points of criticality, it is these kinds of artificial dreams that are the most advanced, efficient, and rewarding. Yeah, so this is actually, I think, although he doesn't make it explicit, one kind of promising way of, of, of making this distinction that he wants to make, because, you know, he says, on the one hand, that these things become just so stereotyped that they're just doing the same overfitting job as our ordinary lives. Um, and then art has like a shocking realness. It's like, well, what is it that gives it the shocking realness or what is right. it? And what does that even mean? Shocking realness since like, we're trying to, uh, not mirror or reflect the everyday life. But I think it's when he talks about the innate ambiguity, um, and that side of it, that, uh, while still having 
like really important patterns. Here's where I would, what I would just add to the argument, not disagreeing with anything, but what I would add to it is the importance of interpretation and like what good art does. And maybe this is why Marvel, phantasmagoric as it is, it maybe doesn't have this element to the extent that like uh, other art might, which is this innate ambiguity about how to interpret the um, the work and that a lot of the richness of great art is in trying is in just discussing you know like this is the kind of art that we've discussed on this podcast right. all the time Borges Kafka right. uh, it's it's and and a lot of the movies that we've uh, talked about the best conversations are one where we're trying to like actively uh, work out how you know what this mean what what's the meaning of it is and why you know and and why it's causing us to have the emotional reactions that that we're having and there's something about that that's healthy you know like that's good yeah. food that's not fast food that's not just watching Law and Order or whatever where you're just given like all the beats that you want that you like kind of crave so that you can turn your brain off it's like turning our brain on and right. like that seems to me like a a solid basis for some sort of distinction between art and 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 you know entertain entertainment that is entertaining but not art i i like that a lot like i love the way you said that because it is a both captures like like you said why we gain satisfaction from discussing the things that we do i mean on the one hand we could just say well it's because there's not that much to say about some art that's straightforward um you know there's we can fill an hour talking about a paragraph in Borges and we can't do that with a comic book um, or at least with a Marvel comic book. Um, but it's true that like that feeling of satisfaction, the feeling of having worked out your brain um, is really different. And as much as I love comic books, like comic book movies, you have guys being like, I'm evil, you know, and that guy's right. saying, I'm good. I'm going to destroy you. No, I'm going to destroy you. And like, this is, by far not what comic books are today, but it is what a lot of like the lowest common denominator entertainment really, really ends up being. And I think it is um, feeding ourselves with stuff that is so easy to interpret at face value is much like the, the lucid dreams that I have, which is just like, I'm keeping shit really predictable. I'm working hard to keep it really predictable. And then it ends up actually fatiguing me. And I think right. this is what he's trying to say is like, you, you think that by watching Law and Order and Friends and Marvel movies, that you're scratching that itch for for something, but you you haven't really. I mean, I think like sometimes with something like Law and Order, which I don't know if it still resonates with certain listeners, but that that is a role for some things. Is but I but okay, I see what you're saying. It's not that you think it. it you think it's relaxing you. But yeah. it's actually not because you're not getting that kind of stimulation right. that right. you need for yeah yeah maybe relaxing isn't the right word but like the work that that it's supposed to be doing or at least that that our brains are craving is getting it's like it's getting a bit fooled and I, you know I love putting stuff on that I can ignore like you know I I often like if I'm cooking or even if I'm just like actually working I'll have something on in the background that I can ignore and um and that's you know it's relaxing in some way it's just familiar it's very familiar i don't i don't need to pay attention i kind of know what's going to happen in every episode of law and order you know save yeah. spare the detail like except for the details um but it's it, soothing yeah right there's something soothing soothing about the familiar um but it at least whatever the word is for what art is supposed to do here in this definition of art maybe that really is the case that it's not 
you know, um, and it's, it's, it's not so surprising then that the kind of fiction that is consumed by younger minds tends to be the easy stuff and the stuff that, you know, that you like later on in life tends to veer toward the more complex, I think. Yeah, I think it depends. I mean, sometimes kids are into pretty wacky shit, you know, like yeah. that it's, it's, they're not necessarily doing like hermeneutical analysis of it, but <laughs> well, yeah. they no, are was, kind of craving <laughs> it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know about the, the younger stuff because I do think we're pretty hungry for. Well, maybe cool what's art. going on is that since they haven't had as much experience that, that something can actually like Superman, you know, super friends cartoons did fulfill that role for my younger mind. Right. Like it yeah. was like a, in a right, scaffolding right, right. kind of way. It was exactly. just out of just out of reach from my right. experience in a way that it just isn't right. now. But as the tropes and the cliches become solidified now, yeah. like it's no longer. <laughs> right. Able right. To do that. The first time you yeah. learn about tro- the first time you you hear a trope, it's not a trope. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so that's why, like, it has its place for younger minds and maybe older minds are using it for are, are, are going to it for this other thing, yeah. uh, like maybe also distracting you from your own thoughts and your own right. problems, and um, which is a, definitely a thing we turn to, like, to try to do. Yeah. Um, and that's harder and harder to, to, like, find space to not do that because it is such a craving. You know, we were going to talk about this article or blog post about, like, mind-wandering and how we don't do that. Like, we yeah. do that such a, a fraction of the time that we used to. It's a it's a little bit of a different, um, but it's related point that that author was making, which is it's really valuable to allow our brain to have some free reign and not just have it focused on something all the time, but um, but it's often uncomfortable, and so right. we have to like live with that discomfort. And so if you make an effort to you know, go on a walk without listening to anything, you know? <laughs> feels or weird take, now, yeah. It feels weird, but, like, it's often rewarding, and it's often when, like, good ideas happen, and it's often when, like, um, so I, you know, uh, but it's it like reading art rather than reading, like, a fun mystery. It's something that you have to kind of force yourself to do, and it's and the rewards come, like, when you're doing it. But the hard part is just getting yourself to actually do it. Right. And I think it's the same kind of thing that our brain, our brain needs that, but it's not, but it's easier to not have it. And I guess it's actually exactly what we need and, right. and would end up being more restful yeah. if we did it, which I think is also true of those things. Yeah. Now, I will say, like, one, if, if this is going to be taken as an argument for, as he says, um, that, you know, the, the necessity of an aesthetic, an aesthetic spectrum um, and the distinction between good art and entertainment, um, what I do worry about is that the way in which we often decide what is good art has nothing to do with this. So there is, like, a sociological aspect to people defining what's good and, you know, to go back to comic books right now, like there are graphic novels that challenge me in ways that no other media has. Um, but, but you know, the, the literati might look down upon that because it has drawings and it's, you know, related to the, the history. I of, feel like of, graphic uh, novels are accepted as art now. Maybe. I like to keep believing, though, that I'm just a rogue in this. Uh, <laughs> I've discovered them on my own. <laughs> to, to the barricades. As, and as we, like we probably have talked about at some point. You know, there is a lot of art that's just be- that's said to be great because somebody important said it was great, and it, it's actually probably not, right? Um, 
I almost think that, and I don't know if he's saying this, but I would argue this, pretentious fuck that I am, it's not as important to decide what art and and what isn't art. Like, um, that's not as important um, as just having a line there in the first place where you're actually thinking about that, right? right? And so, like, you, like, if some people don't want to put graphic novels on that list and you do, that's fine. As long as you both maintain that there is a distinction and are trying to sort of work out what that distinction is and why graphic novels either are or aren't on that, on one side or the other. You know, because, like... I, there's plenty of things that I thought weren't art and then now I just, because I, I didn't understand and now yeah. I do and I think that's that they are. So that's fine. That's natural. What's, what would be bad is if, you know, and I don't even have, I don't have any like sympathy for this view. It's just to say that it's all the same or that like there's no distinction. Um, and I think, you know, you could read this article as just saying, maintain the distinction. We don't all have to agree on on what, the distinction is or where the line is and what belongs on one side or the other. Yeah, I really like that. It reminds me of um, Roger Ebert, whom I loved as just as a critic, um, as a writer, uh, got in this argument with with a whole generation of people <laughs> when he said that video games are not art. And a lot of people were like, have you like, have you played some of these video games, like these modern ones, like that have these amazing, like both stories and visual, like, you know, world scapes. Um, And he, I think, came around to at least understanding why people uh, do consider it art and and, and appreciating some of the, the complexity of that art. And I, I don't know if he was ever convinced that he, that it was something that he ought to consume, but, but that's a case where the conversation was had. And, right. and I think that, that you're right, that that's, that's important um, and good. And it can avoid some of the elitism. If you mount a good argument and tell me why, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons from the, the 50s or 40s are great pieces yeah. of art. Um, or and I Ant listen. Ant-Man 2. Or Ant-Man 2 is a great piece of art. Um, or The Room. <clears throat> um, <laughs> then we can listen and you can tell me why. And maybe I'll be convinced and, and maybe not. But Right. But at least we're thinking about what makes for good art. Right. And we're not just saying it's all just, you know, fully um, in the eye of the beholder. And there's no point in trying to even get to this. Um, I think my favorite part of his analysis is as this, um, this idea that artful narratives have both a freshness and innate ambiguity and that they represent without uh, overfitting via stereotype. And then when he says, and you quoted this, that the nudge in one direction can veer to kitsch, mm-hmm. a nudge in another is, you know, like, I don't know, some dissonant music that doesn't mean anything to me, although I think it probably right. does to some people. But um, again, it doesn't matter. Like, that's just going to depend on the person. But like, this uncanny valley of familiarity thing is pretty interesting and seems right to me that. Um, uh, that that there is this sort of space where art thrives, which is, you know, it's not obvious what's going on or how to interpret yeah. it or what the meaning is or where you should be on it, but it's also not just random. Blips. Right. You haven't just lost it. Right. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking about this in terms of like music appreciation. And I, I remember like a while ago thinking that um, it was always interesting to me that the music that I enjoyed the first time I heard it never really ended up being the music that I loved. 
Like there is something about like pop music that is really great when you hear it. You're like, oh, that's a really clever tune or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then like the the more complex kind of uncomfortable music that you might not really like the first time you listen to it or that is kind of jarring or uncomfortable. Um, that's the stuff that rewards repeated listening and that you want to talk about and that you want to think about. And that ends up being, you know, like the kind of music that I like. And I can see that that kind of discomfort that hasn't lost you, right? There's cacophonous music that like people yeah. might put out there as like great art, but I, it's not, I'm not there. I'm not there yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it needs to be just uncomfortable enough for me um, with right. a fat dose of familiarity. Yeah, no, totally. And I think like when it hits you, it can be unexpected. You know, I'm doing this philosophy of film class and I was surprised that some people thought like fight club was like, really like out there and disturbing and like while well, i love yeah. fight club like i don't think of it as something that like right. it, like it's it, it almost seems kind of fun and energetic but i think um whoever was saying that is someone maybe doesn't have that kind of experience with this kind of movie that i do yeah. and did the first time i saw fight club um but then like we all saw persona the Ingmar Bergman film, which we could do an episode on, by I've the never way, watched which it. is just like, it's just so hard to wrap your mind around what's going on and how to interpret it. And at least for me, that was in that perfect sweet spot right, right now. I hope it was for my students and not in the, you know, into the uh, right. too experimental and like cacophonous and, but like, cause, cause I don't, th you know, but, but, you know, like that's obviously going to depend on the person. Like that's if right. it's expanding so, you, like it, it's expanding you, you yeah. are, you have a set of experiences. Right. And I like that. I like this way of thinking about it because it is neither. There are objectively good things. It's not, nobody's like, like, I believe that some people might not like the music I like or the films you like. Um, and, but yet it's not just completely subjective. Like there is Anything something, goes, yeah. there is something. And that something yeah. does also depend on the context, and the context includes the person's experiences and uh, and their expertise in a domain, like right, I and their familiarity with the the, the 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 genre. Right, you can't just jump into Ingmar Bergman. You just yeah. you don't go. It can't be from... the first movie that you see. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, I like it. And you know, like yeah, often great art also takes advantage of your familiarity with the medium uh, or whatever it is in the form of it and subverts it. But if you, if you don't have the familiarity with the form and the, uh, and the expectations, then Absolutely. Like, it's not going to do it. I'm going to, for like the nth time, bring up uh, Jay Dilla's Donuts album, um, the, the instrumental hip-hop album that he did right before he died, which on the face of it uses a ton of tropes, um, uses samples that have been used hundreds of times um in a way that you're like wait i thought he was like super underground and shit like why is he using right. stuff that but he ends up using those in such a novel way that it's almost just him flexing like i i can do this with this thing that you yeah. know but he's bringing you in with the thing that you know and then he's showing you what he can do with it and right. that's the best kind of like place to yeah. sit and you can't start i can't start somebody on that album I like, I don't want that to be how they listen. I want them to know these other things first. And right. that ends up sounding pretentious when you're like hipster, you're like, oh, you got to listen to this and this and this. But I, the charitable way of understanding that is like, look, there is a context that I b believe me, you will appreciate this Lynch movie yeah. if you take the time to like spend some time with right. some other of his right. work or the, some other films. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or like you were talking about with The Shining, right? Like Kubrick knows that you have certain expectations for a horror movie and certain like things that you expect to find. And he's going to give you some of them. He's going to give you maybe overly kind of, but he's also going to subvert a lot of them too. And that's just, that's the landscape that he's working with is assuming that his audience has a kind of familiarity with the genre that he's working within. Right. That's why I think some cases of bad art are when somebody mistakes the subverting part and the like cacophonous part for like the, the important thing. And so they put out something that is actually just confusing. Like it's not actually doing the work they think it's doing, but it has the surface structure of being like experimental and challenging, but there's no there there. Like it's, it's just the opposite of like friends and, and you know, this is what I think Lynch is really, we should, we should wrap up, but this is what I think Lynch is so good at. You know, there's so many other surrealist filmmakers who don't have anywhere near the success as Lynch does. And I think the thing that Lynch figured out was if you have a core mystery at the center of your movie, then you can do all this other more surreal, abstract stuff that, you know, makes the audience work because they're just you've got them with with the mystery. And yeah, who killed um, Laura Palmer is not what that show is about. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you know, or like, you know, in Fire Walk with Me, it, it kind of is, but but it's not about the mystery of it, but the mystery is the thing that draws you in. Yeah. All right. Uh, we should wrap up this nice discussion. I think uh, Eric Hoel, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I hope he doesn't mind that a Jew talked about his, his essay. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and there, hey, and there you go, neuroscientists. Uh, we took a neuroscientist seriously. And if this is what neuroscientists are doing, like writing these kinds of articles, then <laughs> oh my god, like they're, they're, <laughs> it is a real like. I urge our academic friends and also non-academics, like like look at this, like the the ambition that you pointed out, and then but without the. I don't know, preciousness of, yeah. you know, some people who try to come up with grander right. theories of, 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 of human life or whatever, uh, the human situation, that's like a really good thing. Like I, and, and we should too. Yes. Right. Well, we do it every, every episode. We do it yeah. every two weeks. <laughs> All right. All right uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.